0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Recovery Machine. I'm your co-host, Nathan, and over here we have Corey. How are you doing,
1: Corey? Hey, Nathan, I'm good, thanks.
0: How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, It's Saturday and it's sunny out here in Kelowna, which is nice. I'm uh, probably like the rest of everybody else out there, feeling the weight of the incessant chaos in the news and the the strange state of affairs with... uh, with what's going on in our country right now and around the world. And uh, we've been talking about it a little bit in meetings throughout the week, how it's kind of added a layer of uh, complexity to, you know, everybody's day-to-day life. you got your normal worries, your normal uh, concerns. And then on top of that, you got this thing in the background, if you know what I mean.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important to, I said that in a meeting this morning to, to give ourselves credit for that, to give ourselves a little bit of permission to feel that, um, that disease or that that sense of stress or, or doom and gloom or what, however you want to put it, that it's it's very much a real thing and, and it it does take a toll on us. It does take a toll on our mental health and our and our sense of well-being.
0: Absolutely. And uh, kind of the quandary I find myself in is is what to do with that thought process as far as okay, I'm aware that that's going on. I would, categorize that as something that is for the most part beyond my control there's not a lot I can do about most of it Um, so you know therefore am I supposed to just ignore it and uh, use no mental energy and focus on everything else I suppose logically that would be what you'd want to do right
1: yeah or at least really really put a cap on how much you take in you know, that's what I try to do. And I, um, I try to check in and and see what's happening in the world or in our country every day, but uh, I really put a limit on that. And, and I, uh, I forgive myself if someone tells me something that's going on or an update of the current events. And I say, oh, I hadn't heard that yet. And uh, I almost feel proud of that because it means that I wasn't um, taking it in, taking in that information constantly, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That is kind of a, it's a badge Yeah. It, to me, it means you're you're paying en- enough attention to know that you've got to reduce or throttle that input.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm old enough to remember the days of of not necessarily hearing it until you watch the six o'clock news. And uh, oh, to go back to those days! I think all of us probably think at times that how sweet that would be. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Even if it was all
0: nonsense, and who knows what how much was true, and um, I, I mean that's one thing that the internet has brought is kind of an illumination of uh, how much how much false and true there is out there. But yeah. um, today, I guess what we're we're gonna do, we decided we're gonna take more of a broad kind of scope of the the federal government's kind of uh, strategy as far as. You know, you, you look at the state of the country we appear to be, especially BC, where, where we continue to trend in the wrong direction as far as the opioid crisis is concerned. What is being done? What has been, what has been planned? What has worked? What has failed on a countrywide scale? And then we'd like to, we'd like to go over how that pertains to the people on the front lines in healthcare, Yeah, how that how that trickles down and what kind of an impact, if any, it has at that level. So um, yeah, maybe if you'd be so kind, Corey, can you um, start us off with what they considered to be the four pillars of our current strategy?
1: Yeah. So the four pillars as they, as they stand or, or don't stand now are uh, prevention, treatment, harm reduction, and enforcement. And we're going to break down down each one of those, um, and and get into the the impact of each one. Um, we could spend hours and hours and hours and, and get into statistics and get into um, debate, depending on who you are in the and your political lean or or your job or a number of factors. You could have a different opinion on each one of these, but we want to look at it. Um, in, in fairly general terms, and uh, and look at from a from a healthcare worker's perspective too. Is it working? Is it not? And then kind of look else look outwards a little bit from from there.
0: Yeah, I mean that's that's one of the things I think that we can do from our position, right? Is is uh, shine a light into into areas that other people haven't seen, especially pertaining to our specific careers and professions. And then uh, I mean, even. Every time I look at this stuff I see something else it's uh, there's a, a tremendous amount of information and you're right you could spend you spend a lifetime just going over the politics involved with these decisions how you know the the, the current kind of feel in the country and how the our surroundings like uh, being um, the neighbors with uh, the United States, how that's affected us and and uh, it all—it's it, interesting stuff, but yeah, it take a long time. So, we're going to try to uh, try to stick to the uh, four pillars as far as we what we know about them, and um, we'll break it down for you guys. One thing I wanted to just kind of uh, point out as far as the history of this program—I mean, if you look past, if you go all the way back into uh, you know the uh, like the 1920s and 30s, there was a, many different. Kind of uh, ideas about how drugs should be approached. When we got to 1987, Canada put their first revision of what is actually the current model forward as the Canada Drug Strategy. It was the same thing. It had the four pillars, prevention, harm reduction, treatment, but most of the emphasis and by far most of the money was going towards enforcement. So that was the 1987 model. And then in 2007, they switched to a more, uh, it, it was called the National Anti-Drug Strategy. And this one was an even further further kind of ratcheting up of enforcement over compassion. So very much looking at this like a, um, a, a problem with a weakness in society from the top to bottom and trying to eliminate substance abuse from everywhere just uh, that, that kind of approach. So interesting to see that we were trending in a good direction. Then 2007, actually backpedaled more into an anti, uh, going against the, the evidence and the research and the science towards a more kind of conservative approach, I guess you'd say. Yep. And then now we've, in 2016, we're back to the four pillar approach. It's been renamed the Canadian Drugs and Substances Strategy. And, uh, same type of thing, same f- four pillar approach. And we'll discuss kind of what kind of resources are being put in and what's being done differently, etc. Yeah. So <clears throat> I guess we'll look at, um, look at prevention first and in, in just a general sense. Eh?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the, the question that we had was what is being done to prevent, uh, Drug and substance use in the general population first, which is a to me when I was thinking about these questions, I kind of thought we were we're starting from one of the hardest pillars to look at, Um, at least the one that probably is probably the most gray and probably uh, has the least evidence behind it. I would I would venture to guess. Um, in that we're not looking at numbers of, of incarcerations. We're not looking at numbers of deaths. Um, although those are certainly things that, that factor in and that you can, you can, um, make a part of the conversation, but it's, it's gray because to me, the, the conversation about prevention is so much the conversation about mental health and the conversation about, uh, with our youth, it's a conversation of how it occurs in our schools. In the education system, and it's a harder one to to quantify. I think.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I was thinking about ways that you could address that, and um, one thing that they like to say, especially in the in this new model, it's if you go online and you look on the Canadian site, there's probably three quarters of it is just word salad. Basically, appeasing different special interest groups with a bunch of nonsense words about uh, education and usually it's increasing access to care. These are yeah. the terms they use. But then, when you follow those terms and, and try to, to find out what actually has been done, like where can you go? What do you mean by education? Like, are you handing out pamphlets? What's the, you, you kind of come to this uh, delta of dissipation. And there's not a lot there. And I I think from from a healthcare point of view, we've all seen uh, doctors, the the stringency with which they're allowed to prescribe opiates and benzos and and medications like that has now been cranked way up past, I think, actually quite a ways past what it should be to the point where a physician can no longer, if a patient comes in and they just uh, write a prescription for one of those drugs they need to follow up and and actually explain on a separate document why they did that. Yeah, And um, of course we can, we've seen what that's done to people who, who are suffering in uh, with uh, chronic pain situations, um, complex pain and uh, neuropathic pain where they may have been controlled or had their, their situation under control medically. And then all of a sudden they're, they're faced with a, a quick taper or, Being completely cut off because their doctor is facing pressure from the government. So, I mean, that that is something that I've seen as far as they're trying to prevent the amount of narcotics getting out, and that that comes down to uh, we see that in paperwork now too and narc narcotic reconciliations. There's, you know, they've cranked it up. Basically, do everything you were doing before, only do it three times
1: as often. Yeah.
0: Like what kind of a difference is this going to make? <laughs> you know? Um, yeah.
1: I'm not, I'm not sure that it will.
0: Me neither. I haven't, what I've seen is, um, I've seen a lot of law abiding citizens who are having a lot of trouble accessing medications that were, that were helping them. I'm sure that there are other people who didn't access medications based on False premises, premises. But uh, I, I don't know it. Uh, to me, I, I don't like the, uh, I don't like what's going on with the chronic uh, pain regulation right now. What I thought, uh, and maybe you could uh, tell me if I'm on the right track here. But I thought it might be useful. One of the things that you could do, because this is an area that's hard to quantify, like you said. If we put money into, say, we, get, we do a study that's targeting, say, two age groups, maybe kids when they get right out of high school and then, say, at age 25 or maybe closer to 30 and have a, a well-designed uh, survey, basically, to kind of get a baseline for what kids know about drugs. Yeah. What do young adults actually know? I suspect they know more than we think they know, and there's probably, I mean, it's probably, a, there's a wide range of, uh, of beliefs, and I think if we could get a baseline that was fairly stable, you know, um, have it as a, a program that's, that's going on year after year to measure whether or not any of your programs for education are actually having an impact, but also just from a data point of view, I think it'd be really interesting to, uh, to see.
1: Yeah, I, I do too. I'd be curious to know that. I think that, uh, that we know now that, that the other pillars, like the pillar of enforcement it did, has not had the impact on prevention that they thought it would Yeah, it, in terms it, of, yeah, in terms of stopping people from stopping young people from, from accessing or experimenting with drugs in the first place. Um, and I think any, a trip into any high school, would would probably uncover that pretty quickly. Um, and certainly in, in my era of going to high school, it, and that was that was sort of prior to some of these revisions being made. Uh, it, it didn't it didn't slow things down at all.
0: No, quite the opposite actually and if you it's not hard to find stats that support that. It's well known that, that is a, that part of enforcement is that there's been no no discernible impact on no prevention. Um, so, I mean, I, I looked for a while and that was, <laughs> I couldn't find anything else that was really tangible as far as uh, strategies that were being implemented.
1: Yeah. You know, the, the, the thing, the thought that I kept having as I was thinking about prevention was that, you know, we've talked about the phrase that's a fairly well-known and well-accepted phrase now that the opposite of addiction is, is connection yet all of the drivers within our society are, are leading us away from from intimate interpersonal connection, and and it's so much of the connection occurs behind screens, and we know now that 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 is not the same type of connection. Connection through social media, for example, which to make a bit of a generalization, but if you think about how how um, just ingrained in in society for our young people that that is, so. It, when I was thinking about prevention, I thought, well, what if it was a, a more regular class or a more regular part of our education system where it wasn't just like you go to a gym class and they've got the, the blackboard up about what types of drugs are out there and what could happen to you and the risks and stuff. But what if it was done in a more of a, the style of, of some of these um, peer support groups where there was, where there was open conversation and maybe it was peer-led conversation? or at least conversation that was led by a non-authority figure where there could be really frank discussion about mental health and about, about illicit substance use without the fear of repercussion.
0: Yeah. That's a very interesting idea. Um, If you got kids to, I don't know what would be, I think back when they were trying to, uh, they were still using the dare program. I think they, they hit you with that somewhere around grade seven or something. And six or seven. Uh, that's when they think you're uh, you're going to be vulnerable, and when you're you know uh, mature enough, I guess, to to handle it. But uh, obviously, we know that that was a complete debacle. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that uh, why not? I I mean, we're having so many mental health issues, and especially with the the kids that are coming up, they're very their attention is broken into a million different pieces with social media. And that's like, they're, they're interact, like they're, you know, wired. They're already half AI, you know? Yeah, uh, sure. (laughs) Um, So yeah. What if you, you got them away from their devices for say every day you did a 30 minute sit down with, I don't know if you'd, maybe you could have a group of a certain number of kids and then that would change up every month or something. So you, you know, maybe if there was somebody in your group that you didn't feel comfortable talking with, at least somebody else would, you know, you'd get changed out. So you'd have an opportunity to discuss or be more open the next time type of thing. Um, yeah. And if, and if it was just, if the teacher took a role of simply kind of standing back as a facilitator and not actively being a part of the discussion,
1: that, that could be interesting. It it, it could. And you know, for anyone who thinks, "Well, I don't want my my child having a frank discussion about drugs," and while they're in school, they probably already are.
0: <laughs> well, of course, yeah, of course I mean, they are. there's no, you can't hide from the problem, and you can't, you can't scare kids away from the problem. It's not, I don't know. You think back to the way your your mind works when you're a teenager. They don't think in those terms. It's a, it's a very now centered vision and. Uh, Mortality is not something that's on your radar.
1: No. you know.
0: Um, but learning from each other, I mean, that's what kids do anyway, right? That's where, like, to me, when I look at high school, okay, well, the stuff you learn in there, I mean, you could probably condense it into a year or two, right, if you're mm-hmm. really serious about learning that material. Um, but the other stuff that you learn there in that atmosphere as far as uh, how to act socially, um, what you can tolerate from people, your patience level, um, you know, all those little things that you can't just read a book to, to understand. Those are the things that a lot of those things are life lessons that shape you for a long time. So I wonder if you could use more of an angle like that to, to have a greater impact, at, at least to, inc- like, we don't know, Like people are never going to stop using drugs. I mean, we can say that with a fair amount of confidence. This is just human beings have been using drugs since we've kept records. It's just, there's a desire to, to change our perception. That's it's, it's innate, Um, some, some more than others. And of course, some people uh, go too far with it, but you, you would, you would have to think that having more realistic knowledge at a younger age, and having a better grasp of that would have some kind of an impact. For example, look at how often we see kids who grow up with alcoholic parents who stay away from booze because yeah. of what they've seen. They didn't. They didn't learn that in a book. They were witness to the the, the destruction of that problem when it's unmanaged, right? Yeah. So yeah, that uh, that's a really good idea, man.
1: It's an interesting discussion, and because right, I, you know, I think if you think about imagining conversations that are happening within a within the hallways of a high school, and if a if a principal were to overhear a conversation about about you know buying some ecstasy or buying a bag of pot, and hauling those kids into the office to give them a slap on the wrist or suspend them or whatever is will do will only push them underground. We'll only stop, stop some sort of a dialogue from happening. A dialogue that could, could be more honest. That could be, you know, get to the real root of where that's coming from and, and, and bring it out into the, into the light instead of pushing it into the, into the shadows.
0: It's a dialogue that could save a life. It could. Right? And actually we should mention that, that is one thing that uh, when we get to harm reduction, um, th- that they've changed, the government has changed in BC. I'm not sure if it is like this in the other provinces, but there's a, a, a protection law now for people who are requesting help in drug overdoses that they can't be persecuted for drug possession or yeah. anything to do with drug per- paraphernalia. And that, that's exactly why, right? It's the same situation. You're trying to, you need to be able to tell that principal if your friend is dying so they can get help.
1: Yeah, right.
0: Yeah.
1: Exactly. So, Nathan, can we, can we ask the same question within the world of healthcare? What is being done in terms of prevention for, for healthcare workers?
0: Well, uh, uh, I'm sad to say, but I, I would say the answer to that is nothing. There's even though you can look back at uh, how many times the uh, health ministry has claimed that they're going to they're going to put money and research into uh, they always say that they're they're working hard to make the workplace safe right and then you go, okay <laughs> what are you doing and oh well we've you know we've secured these uh sharps containers so that you can't break into them anymore you know it's always something like that where they they take something that's existing and they they tweak it a little bit and uh, there's never any reference to did it have an impact was there any was there any work done to see if this is actually helping anything or you know where is the data coming from to support this as a method of of prevention for healthcare workers yeah i i don't see it have you what's your thoughts on that
1: Very, very similar. So, uh, you know, I have been hearing that, um, for a good part of my career that they were looking at changing, for example, changing the, the way sharps containers and for anyone who doesn't know, we're talking about bins where, where needles or vials of, of partially used or empty, empty vials would be discarded. Um, I've been hearing about that for a long time, about changing, changing the mechanism and changing the, the structure of those bins to make it safer. And make them more impenetrable, um, and then there are also different safeguards put into our um, drugs dispensing machines. That uh, first of all, records are kept, and uh, and there are flags and warnings that come up on them. There are also things like needing requiring two signatures to waste medications, uh, so they all wastes have to be have to be supervised by a peer. Now, are those are those preventative things i think they would say yes they are but i i agree with you i would challenge that they are structural means of prevention but they're not prevention in a kind of in a larger sense well in every
0: situation that i've come across throughout this problem with the healthcare workers who get into trouble this way especially i mean how many nurses with the hydromorph i mean it's it's, it, I don't know. I, it, I think if most people understood what was going on just on a, on a volume capacity where they, where they saw how many it's like a turnstile of nurses going to treatment and coming out and going to treatment and coming out. Um, if you have somebody who wants to, to, to use that medication and it's available in any way, shape or form. And these are, you know, you know, healthcare professionals can be uh pretty determined, I think, and uh, for the most part, uh, fairly intelligent folk, Um, they're going to figure out a way, you know, so these types of prevention methods, they're not going to, uh, they're not going to cut it without any measurable data. How would you ever know anyway?
1: Yeah. And and the question that to me, that where our system falls short is in saying, how come You have thousands and thousands of employees. What is different? What is happening to those few and growing number who do? And for myself, I look at what flipped in me from the time, you know, where I was working amongst hydromorphone for years and didn't consider it. And then it came to a point where I did and, and. to me, it's not that different of a conversation as than what we were just talking about with high schools that, that maybe you start by with some, an increased emphasis on peer support and on dialogue and on mental health. And maybe that's what true prevention for, for our healthcare workers looks like. And, you know, we we've talked in in the past about, um, the role that debriefing has debriefing with, for traumas, which is, which is great, but that is, that is incidental. And it is a, it is usually a singular conversation and it is not a, it is not maintenance.
0: No. And from what I understand, it's, it's barely implemented to the level that it's even, it's not even at what, what was, what was recommended in, in the beginning and that many nurses don't have time to stop and debrief. And if anybody, <laughs> if anybody knows a work a nurse that's working in BC right now, they will tell you that they don't have more time right now. They don't have more time than they did five years ago or two years ago. This is the—they are busier now than probably ever.
1: Yeah, and if you think about um, sick time and the use of of calling in sick for, for a mental health purpose or for a burnout purpose. Um, It's not, you know, there's a list of options. When you call in sick, there's a list of options that it gives you, you know, press one. If you have a a respiratory illness or press two, if you have vomiting or diarrhea, just so they can track. So the employer can track um, why people are calling in sick. There's no option for mental health. There's no option for burnout Mm. and, why wouldn't we want to know that? Why wouldn't we want to track that? And, yeah. and not only that, but then if, if you are inclined, if you are, um, uh, an empathetic, sensitive person, things that we've talked about in our previous episodes, and you know that, that your team will be short staffed and that your team will be that, that, that sick call for your mental health probably won't get filled. Your, your team will probably be short that is a deterrent. And that is for many, uh, that is something, a reason why they wouldn't call in sick. And um, so they try to push through. And if, if, if you, if you don't think that there's a connection there between that sustained sense of burnout and sustained wear and tear on your mental health and turning to a substance to, to cope, then you're, you're wrong. (laughs) You're wrong.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, it's a great point because it's a, it's a vulnerable upstream access point that could be improved greatly with very little money. You know, it, it, just if, even to start tracking, I mean, like you said, this could be set up on a, um, on a phone tree system where you, you're just, you're, you're keeping track of, of who's calling in and what the purpose is and collecting that data. And then at least you've got a baseline to work with. Um, actually implementing, I mean, say somebody calls in, you see that they've called in for, uh, because for mental health issues three times this month, maybe, uh, some sort of a alarm should go off somewhere and that individual should be checked on. Yeah. You know, what's going on? I mean, like have a, have a sit down and that'd be a great time to to roll out the the person for the, that they should have seen probably three times already for a debriefing.
1: That's right. You know, I, I mentioned this, I think, in the in my introductory episode. I, I remember one specifically uh, horrific incident that I was involved in, and it happened to happen within six hours of my first shift on a set of four shifts. And uh, I went through that incident, I finished my shift, and then I came back for three more. And there was a debrief on one of those, but the message that I received for toughing it out and being there is, Oh, you're good. (laughs) Oh, way to go. Way to help the team. And true, but, but that there's not a, there's a, there's a price to that.
0: Yeah. It's the wrong type of encouragement. Uh, That's got to be kind of a, I get the pat on the shoulder there, but you don't want to pigeonhole somebody by making that the culture, which it is. Right. But you've got to leave the door open so that people, they can't feel like they're letting their team down and they're asking for help.
1: Yeah, and, and particularly with what is happening in our, in our country, in our world, and in our healthcare system today um, and over the last couple of years, it's, you know, it, we're in the crisis. It's, you know, prevent, we're kind of too late for prevention now. I think we can look forward and look at how, um, how we change this moving forward. But that... that Dramatic effect on 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 folks with burnout and with the deterioration of their mental health and the lack of of support of their mental health or or allowance for that. That's already happened, and now we have to kind of try to rapidly catch up. I think.
0: Yeah, we're going to see some uh, pretty desperate situations here, regardless of what happens now with um, the pandemic and and onwards. If from what's already been done. How hard we've pushed the healthcare professionals in the province. This will affect us for the next five to ten years, at least. With absolutely, people, yeah, just uh, with mental health, with uh, retiring early, with switching professions. I mean, you think it's you think it's a desperate situation now. Give it some time.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or if, uh, or if you have any any um, young folks or pe- you know people in in high school, say who are considering entering the world of healthcare. If they caught a glimpse of what's happening or if they had a conversation with <laughs> the right or the wrong healthcare professional, they would say, holy shit, I'm running and not walking Yeah. away from this. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, again, we could, and we could talk about that for at length because it's such a, such a prevalent issue, but um, Yeah.
0: Indeed. What about uh, what's the next arm there? They look at uh, treatment. So, yeah. treatment options for the general public. If you know somebody who's tried to reach out for help, that can go. You can. You can. You know, if you you call at the right time, or you are lucky to be in the right place at the right time. Uh, lots of times, you can get a hold of somebody who can direct you to a center. Sometimes if you're really lucky, it will be in BC, at least a provincially covered program. There's quite a wait list. Last time I checked for provincially covered programs, but um, if you have the money, you can definitely get into, like, if you're looking for an inpatient treatment or outpatient treatment program, uh, that's certainly an option. Um, But there's many, many forms of treatment for the public out there. I've got... uh, did you uh, did you look into that much as far as uh, different different options, Corey?
1: Well, the thing that I landed on too was was accessibility of, of these things, and that it's greatly um, dependent on cost and dependent on income and and if you can if you or your family can can swing that. Um, we talked we've talked a lot about about treatment centers in our past episodes. Um. You know, as they pertain specifically to to healthcare workers, but that can certainly, I, I think that would that the experiences that you shared, Nathan, would be um, pretty universally accepted as being uh, common amongst people who are not within healthcare too. Um, that it's pretty varied and varies greatly based on how much money you have to to put into it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can go from you know, twelve, thirteen thousand dollars $13,000 for a 35 to 42 day treatment stint all the way up to, I mean, there's ones in Canada that are 40 or 50,000 for the same amount of time. And, uh, it just depends on how much, I think how much, uh, money is being spent on, on the level of the credentials of the people who are helping you the setting, you know, some of them are quite luxurious. Um, and yeah, I think uh, we know that there's differences between treatment centers and it, sometimes it's not even money. It's just for whatever reason, they've got a good collection of people and another place doesn't. Some places have a bad reputation. Some places have a better reputation. Um, that's kind of how it goes with the treatment centers that I've seen
1: anyway. Yeah. And there are there are also another option, at least within our province, are, are detox facilities that are short stay um. Facilities for for drying out, for detoxing from alcohol or or drugs, and but then you're on your own. Like it's this is short stay. This is not, and it is not embedded with a, a rehabilitation program. It is just a, and it is a life saving place for for many because it offers supervision and support while you are detoxing. But it's not the same as a treatment facility. That said, ten years ago there weren't the number of detox facilities, uh, at least in our provinces, there are now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Certainly there wasn't the need 10 years ago that there is now, but, uh, yeah, you're right. It's detox centers are they're usually used as a, a step to get you functional enough, um, or at least clean enough to go on to the next kind of series of steps that lead you towards treatment. Um, basically they keep you alive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wonder why it's five days now that I think about it. <laughs> and I guess that's uh, it probably is based a lot off on uh, of the the more serious conditions, right? Like the withdrawals that can kill you, like alcohol withdrawal. Um, probably if you can get through five days, you're most
1: likely stable. He, but still feeling pretty rough and oh, still- you're going to feel and, rough, yeah. And high saying. risk, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> And, and not necessarily out of the woods, but um, I've, I've certainly seen folks who, who it takes longer than that, um, or after five days, they're maybe barely functional, depending on the sort of the, how extreme their circumstances are, you know?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I looked, I basically looked at a lot of different programs that, that you can, choose to be a part of on your own or that are offered in some treatment centers, like, uh, like we use, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, lots, uh, dialectical, uh, motivational enhancement, uh, theory, psychodynamic. These are all, you know, it's, it's talk therapy basically. And you're going to find yeah. that along with, uh, all the myriad peer support groups that are out there. Yeah. Uh, those are all available options. Um, there's medications that that we know help, obviously, yeah. um, not just uh, opioid replacement ones, but uh, like I've discussed with the Sinclair method, Sinclair method, sorry, using uh, naltrexone and uh, even uh, a compersate. And what are the, used be used, they used to use? Antabuse uh, used to use one that makes you throw up if you drink yeah. when you're taking it. Not very, (laughs) not commonly uh, used. I've never seen it prescribed, but uh, it used to be, I guess. I think it had a little period of time where people were trying to Bots disulfiram, I think it's called. Um, And then there was, they're starting to do, I, I, I read a story. There was an article on a guy who, like he, basically he made it to age 35, in and out of treatment centers his whole life, could not, he just Ever since he was introduced to a drug, he'd been going like he, he just seemed to have no control over the situation whatsoever. Uh, escalated all the way up to the meth and fentanyl and exhausted all his resources, basically, considered himself to be a lost cause. And uh, he ran into a program that was being offered. They wanted to do, I guess this is, um, they use uh, deep electrode stimulation. In the brain directly, they've been using this for Parkinson's with uh, good results for quite a while, I think. And uh, this is the—I'd never seen a study of somebody who'd had that done to try to help with with cravings and withdrawal. But they they used that for this guy. So they've got—I think there's three different areas. I believe it's in the nucleus accumbens, so that area that's very much part of the reward pathway. Yeah, but he can. He can dial up or dial down kind of the, his uh, anxiety levels, the way he uh, kind of processes things. Uh, if he has a craving that's bad, he can go in and they can adjust it. You know, it's, it's pretty interesting and it's not a, you know, I was looking at, it, I was like, Oh man, maybe that's like, maybe that's a cure. Right. But uh, it still, it helps a lot. Like it's actually stabilized this guy and uh, he's been able to, to go back to live in a a normal life, you know, he's got a family and everything, his life is stabilized, but uh, you know, they did it, they did it with a couple other people, didn't work very well. Um, You know, I, I think the technology's only going to improve. And I've thought about, you know, wouldn't that be nice if you could just go in there and dial some of these things back (laughs) and forth, right? Like, I mean, how if we're going to live in this kind of society, isn't it almost necessary that we're we have some kind of attenuation? You know what I mean. Yeah, we're not yeah. we're not out wandering around in the savannah anymore. Okay, we don't need to be. Uh, we don't have, need to have these kind of levels of anxiety, or maybe we do, but it doesn't seem to matter anyway. As far as like, just because we're anxious doesn't mean we're doing any better,
1: right? <laughs> no, no, exactly, exactly. So, yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds. At first, uh, at first, it sounds a little sort of like a Stanley Kubrick movie, or like something that um, Elon Musk would have, is is probably currently working on. But but really, is that how different is that from pharmaceutical control or from um, other you know other other treatment options that we've talked about? I'm not sure that it is.
0: It's not different. No, I think it's. Uh, I think you're you're looking at a. A procedure that is eventually going to be far more precise than pharmaceuticals will ever be, far more specific, as in targeting. You know, you, if you've got a problem with serotonin, you know, synaptic cleft um, down regulation, up regulation, whatever you want to do, they'll be able to fix that. Yeah. You don't have enough vesicles coming out at the end of your synapse. Psh, let's make some more. You know, I mean, you could. You know, you you think a head and you look at a simple, de- not a simple device. That's incredibly, uh, you know, that's very complex obviously to put one of those in somebody's brain, but getting to the point where you're uh, adding maybe a stem cell bio component to it and, and mm-hmm. uh, this turns into something that's, you know, uh, cyborg style, uh, brain device. That's actually you know, fully controlling your mood, which would be kind of scary, I guess. eh?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's, uh <laughs> Yeah. We're not there quite yet, but, but yeah, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Um, and there was one more device that was like
0: that called a NSS two bridge. Uh, this is for cravings as well. And it's the same type of idea, but it's not as invasive. So it's just a, you wear it behind your ear. And I think it uh, it's uh c- contact the tympanic membrane and the, uh, the, the bone that goes behind your ear there. Um Somehow it works to uh, uses electrical impulses as well and decreases cravings in acute withdrawal, and it's, hmm, interesting. it works. It's successful, but it only they they can't get it to do anything for post acute. So I don't know why that is, but uh, they're having some success with
1: that. Hmm, interesting,
0: yeah. So I just thought I'd throw out some weird ones there
1: for you. So let's. Uh, I mean, this is probably the. The biggest one right now in, in our country, certainly in our province, it's the one that has um, opinions have changed uh, probably the most drastically around, uh, which is harm reduction. This conversation now would be a totally different conversation 10 years ago, and probably in 10 years' time, it will be very different than what we're talking right now about harm reduction. I hope so. Yeah. So, so the question we had said was, is it, is harm reduction in Canada being implemented effectively as it stands? Is it, is it working? Do you think? Well, um,
0: I'm going to give Canada a generous C on this one. And that's because we've seen, we've seen a lot of progress with um, supervised injection sites, supervised consumption, and not just the implementation of these strategies, but the implementation of them because we, we're seeing success elsewhere. This is, I think, what most people who are watching this unfold. I mean, that's all we're looking for here. We know that, the, that the, some of these programs have had great success in other countries. So why are we not using them? And and when we, we follow that, when we follow the lead of like the Netherlands and uh, like we have uh, – um, is it uh, is it england i think i think it's england who did the um, they started with heroin uh, giving injectable heroin as an option for people uh, who were on in the methadone program and that has had there's a certain percentage of people who just don't do well on methadone for whatever reason and that percentage has done great on a supervised injection of heroin so i mean what this is all tending or trending towards is the responsible use of drugs. I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of where this is headed. Right. And I like to see that stuff. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that as it progresses where we have a long ways to go there. Uh, what I don't like is uh, they've made some adjustments when did that happened, maybe five or six years ago. I, mean, I don't know if you remember where they made an adjustment to the methadone program where they capped yeah. the amount, changed the potency. Uh, a few people died because of that. Um, I, I I still don't really understand it. I guess their idea is, if you're gonna, I mean, if you're gonna cap your your limit at 100 milligrams, then why does why would you change the potency? Like, I mean, I can understand if you were gonna keep it. I I had patients, um, I've had patients on 360 milligrams a day. And in the old form, that's you're almost drinking half a liter of methadone a day. Yeah. I mean, the patient has to come in there and, and, and sit down. <laughs> They're going to be a while, you know, they yeah. drink this yeah. whole jug. Um, so for them, it would make sense, but then they capped it at 100. And I don't understand why you would cap um, uh, a drug that has no therapeutic ceiling. Like we know that there's a great variation genetically between people the way they respond with these type of drugs. So, you know, either do it or don't.
1: I, yeah, I
0: don't understand. It, it,
1: it, no, I don't either. And, and I think a lot of people don't. And all of the, the reading and research I've been doing leading up to this is that this is a direct, there's a direct correlation between this, this particular issue with methadone and the current overdose crisis is that it, this, the cap on methadone and the change in potency puts people in a position where they're where they're where where they are still uh experiencing um cravings and withdrawal symptoms and and are doing something called chipping where they go and and top off their methadone dose or or with with heroin or in many cases unknowingly fentanyl uh and that that is what you know is a is is a, a contributes to all of these deaths that are happening and to me, the question about, about how serious do we want to get about preventing preventing these deaths that are happening in our country and in our province, um, if that is the goal, if if saving lives is truly the goal, then then we got to get we've got to relook at methadone, and then like you said, we have to look at safe supply, and those just seem like such no brainers now that that we know that you know stop making it so that people don't have any other option, but to go and buy it on the street where they don't know what, what they're getting. And I mean, you and I have talked about our own experience and I, I, I really think that for myself and for you, the, the, our decision that, and that doesn't make us any better than anyone who decides to go and, and use drugs off the street or buy drugs off the street. But, but that was both of our decision was to, to, stay within our quote-unquote safe supply. And that's why I'm alive. That's why I think you are alive, is if nowadays, if you are going to a supply on the street, you are rolling the dice.
0: Absolutely. I mean, in the last, I think back in the last five years, I've lost at least two people that, you know, I I would at least talk to on the phone once in a while, like not close friends, but people that I know well. Just from cocaine, just from recreational cocaine use that was was laced you know that's not even not even people who are going out and looking for an opiate it, like I mean the chance the risk of death is so high that you know it's i I just don't understand like you said if it's if the if the goal is is real harm reduction then why shouldn't the metric be how many people are dying and how do we fix it? Yeah, you know, I mean, there's talk of you know what? Well, if we, you know, people don't like injection sites, they don't like supervised sites. All this, we have tons and tons of data about what happens when you when you provide people with a safe supply, and it's not what you think. The crime right. in the area actually goes down. The trips to the the number of ambulance calls dramatically decreases. Of course, the number of people dying decreases. There's just a general calming effect in the whole, I, I don't know, what, you know, you put a, a center there. I don't know how much of an impact it's going to have, I guess it would depend on uh, population density, but we know what impact, what the kind of impact it is. And it's a positive impact. Yeah. They did uh, run the Naomi trial back in, uh, it was 2005 to 2008. See, this is another thing about Canada that I, I shake my head because we're the only country that did this. The rest of the people who ran this trial, so there was a, a bunch of um, of studies done to see what would happen if you you put together an injection site, supervised injection. Uh, so they're tracking what would be the response in, in a whole bunch of different parameters. And then they also wanted to see how a hydromorph, just injectable hydromorph, would hold up against heroin as yeah. a substitute. And lo and behold, uh, in this study at least, I've seen it, a couple that were maybe questioning this, the validity of this, but in this study, at least most people uh, either accepted hydromorph as a, as an option that was just as good as heroin or even preferred heroin. So there was no, and, and from a, from a federal standpoint, that's a lot easier for us to deal with as a country. Hydromorph is cheap. You know, we can supply that it's uh you know, uh, it's got a nice high potency, so it doesn't, it's uh, probably easier, you know, even from a, a logistics point of view, just for distribution and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, the, there's a trial where it shows that the people who are involved in this trial, uh, it, the individuals who were given the supply, their lives improved dramatically. They spent way more, there was way uh, less physical harm going on in their lives, their Personal life stabilized, less crime, less jail time, blah blah blah. The list goes on. So every other country that did this study, when the study ended, they're like, "Well, we can't stop. These people are doing great. We're going to continue the study just for the people who are in here until we figure out what to do." Canada, yep. no. <laughs> Study's
1: over, guys. <laughs> Back to <Yeah>. the street. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, what kind of
0: lunacy is this? Yeah, and, and I so- wonder,
1: I wonder how many how many deaths occurred within the first month after the cessation of that program
0: who knows but no. Uh, no because nobody's tracking it right i mean uh, it's crazy stuff
1: yeah i mean again the and i think we now know i think it's pretty universally known about about fentanyl about what that um what the potency really what the impact of that potency is but if you just looked at the the incidence of, of people requiring narcan in, in supervised injection sites or, or, or in the streets on the streets, um, it would be just infinitely less with these with use of hydromorphone. Um, the other thing I was going to mention were the um, naloxone kits that have been distributed. And, and these are distributed within these, within any of the, any of our communities. They're distributed at, at the safe consumption sites in shelters, uh, outreach teams and in hospitals. Um, and, and that's great, but the, to my knowledge, those, the, the Naloxone kits come with, um, three vials of, of Naloxone with fentanyl or some of the more potent strains of fentanyl, it's inadequate. Whereas again, if you created a safe supply, still provided those naloxone kits that would be the, the amount of naloxone that is provided would be from inadequate to excessive really the, it would, and, well, and the overdoses just wouldn't occur in the first place. I don't think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's a reason why this is happening with the potency and um, it has to do with enforcement. Yeah. Um, which uh, I guess we can, uh,
1: we were we were going to mention just quickly, Nathan, about about harm reduction in healthcare.
0: Right, right, right. We did want to look at that. Yeah, and
1: there's some, a couple of interesting points there. Is harm reduction in healthcare a feasible thing? Is this does it does it exist?
0: Okay, yeah. I'm glad you uh, brought me back to this one. <laughs> I was ready to forge ahead. Um, it does exist. Here's my understanding of the situation currently. Yeah. So, if Right now, there is healthcare professionals in Canada who have been given the OK to practice well on Suboxone. This was absolutely not a thing just a few years ago. But it's on an individual-to-individual individual basis. And still, many uh, many programs, like I, I haven't seen any nurses. The nurses, uh, I don't know what part of it uh, they don't want to... They don't like, I guess there's, the idea before was, uh, in pharmacy at least, they were concerned with the pharmacist's cognition level. The idea was, if you're on, a, on a Suboxone, you're not going to be as sharp as if you're, as if you're sober. Um, so, pharmacists offered, the pharmacists who were looking to have this uh, as an option, offered to, to, to do the same requirement tests. Is it okay? Well, examine us if we're when we're on we're taking Suboxone, and if we're fine to go, then what's the problem? So they thought about it some more, and they decided to capitulate. No, okay, okay, we'll let you do this. And there's of course there's no problem because it's not with all you'd have to do really is look to the states because they've been doing this for a long time. Lots of doctors down there are are working on a daily basis on some kind of um, opioid replacement. Uh, that's been going on down there for a long time at least my understanding so so this is happening but it's still it's still relatively rare and it's certainly the exception to the rule yeah so i I think it's something that's changing but it's a weird thing and that uh if you talk to people i think both of us were offered suboxone Mm -hmm. at some point in our when we were uh, early in treatment and we both turned it down for obvious reasons we both considered ourselves to be past a point of needing that yeah but had we not then you've just picked up something else that you're gonna have to deal with like uh, it's it's it seems absurd to me that it would be offered and then also a barrier to practice
1: (laughs) yeah I, I said that to you the other day I think it would have to my knowledge derailed any any movement that was occurring with with uh getting back to work or with moving forward within the system like I think it it would be a huge um it would just sort of grind things to a halt yeah which
0: is so strange because the the rhetoric the whole time is oh we're gonna get you back to work don't you worry everything's gonna be fine we'll get you back to work and I was uh, I don't want to go back to work what are you talking about are you crazy I'm not going back in there oh yeah, yeah we'll get you in there we'll get you there and then you get to the treatment. And they're like, "Oh, here, how about some suboxone?" You get out of treatment. Okay, now I don't want you taking like no cough medicine. <laughs> no, I mean, antihistamine. Only thing, no antihistamine. You're not allowed to have a gravel. Um, the only thing you can have is uh, caffeine, and they let you smoke if you're into smoking. Um. So it's yeah, you. you what a strange message or, or a series of messages to receive. So very confusing. Very yeah. confusing. And I'm not sure, I guess we'd have to look into each profession and probably contact colleges. And then you'd have to, uh, you'd have to look at the, the unions, the colleges. Um, yeah. You'd have to uh, talk to everybody basically and find out where they're at with that.
1: Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm also aware that there is, um, and this is a bit of quite a different, different circumstance, but um, I know that the use of of things like um, Adderall and and Ritalin and those stimulant drugs, which are available by prescription, that do have a, certainly have a mood altering um, effect, and I know it can be used by well by anyone, but let's say by a healthcare worker with a prescription. Um, and if they weren't if it, they if they weren't sort of put into the into the machine, so to speak. That they would fly under the radar with that and and be functioning at a, with a stimulant, with a pretty potent stimulant on board.
0: Um, yeah. This is something that gets a little bit ridiculous when uh, like, I think it would be interesting for the general public just to have access to the information that uh, a pharmacist has access to just for a week, just to get a feel for, you know, if you, if you're one of these people who ever felt bad about, um, taking an antidepressant or felt bad because you're on medication for uh ADHD or or something like that. I got news for you. Everybody is on sleeping medication of some kind. Everybody is on an antidepressant and everybody who's working more than like 6 hours a day is on a stimulant, okay? <laughs> this is this is how our society is running. Um if you take those things away, you're looking at a, a zombie apocalypse. In my opinion, I mean, it is, uh, it was shocking for me to, to see, and it's not just, it's not just the, uh, the people on, um, uh, income assistance, it's everywhere up down the board, you know, everybody, there's no exceptions to how ubiquitous, uh, it's not that every, not everybody is on all of those, but man, most people are on at least some of them. Yeah, uh, You look at that, you think, okay, so everybody's either anxious or depressed. Nobody can sleep and they're so tired that they've got to take a stimulant to get through the day. You know, it, it's, it makes you consider or at least ponder what, what kind of a direction we're, we're trending in here.
1: It's true. Yeah, it's true.
0: Um, so, yeah, I guess we can look at uh,
1: the last leg let's do it. So enforcement uh, has enforcement in Canada had any measurable impact on, um, on production and distribution in Canada.
0: So this is a, this is a a very difficult stack to track, uh, to track down the general kind of, uh, I guess the general kind of consensus is that, Enforcement over the years, regardless of the program implemented or the money spent, usually is good for capturing or intercepting about 10% of all illicit drugs that are either manufactured in the country or outside that are getting in. Yeah. So it doesn't matter. We tried spending tons and tons of money on it. The states tried to spend tons and ton, tons of money on it. And what happens is um, it's interesting uh, with what we were talking about before, with potency. It's, uh, they have a word for it. It's an iron law of prohibition. I think it's called iron yeah. law. So what they noticed was the more money that was spent on enforcement and the more rigorously, strictly, like the more, the more police they put on the ground, the harder they made it to get drugs into a, a population or into a country. The potency of those drugs increased and the reason for that is simple. It's easier to smuggle a more potent drug. So if you look at what's happened, like we, we've went, we went nuts on trying to stop heroin from getting into the country. All of a sudden, they synthesize, uh, synthesizing uh, fentanyl became uh, popular, and then, and then it turned into W18 or carfentanil. So you've yeah. got something that is... Uh, you know, fentanyl is a thousand times the potency of mor- uh, morphine and carfentanil is a thousand times more potent than that. So, I mean, some of these drugs, like carfentanil, I don't know how you even like, how could you work? How how did they uh, make this stuff in a clandestine lab? I mean, these labs are probably extremely high tech. Um, but I mean, if you inhale a molecule of this stuff, you're, you're down. Yeah. Like uh, in pure form. So, I mean, you think of the fentanyl's bad enough, but something like that—I mean, you, you could have an elephant walk by a, a, and 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 have a little bit hit uh, inhaled or uh, injected or whatever, and that's it. Like it's just—it's—it's it's beyond comprehension that that could be a drug of abuse to me, and yet this is where we're at.
1: Yeah, and we're not talking about the old-fashioned-looking bricks of of drug. And that's what you're saying is that it's that much easier to smuggle.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, as technology, the more money we pour into technology to, to, uh, to try to break down the organized crime as far as distribution and, uh, and uh, trafficking is concerned, every dollar that's spent, they look at it and they go, okay, well, what you've done is you've increased the incentive now. So yeah. it takes to be a successful criminal to distribute this drug takes a lot of uh, resources. So the price of the product goes up and the potency goes up and it continues in that direction until the pressure is relieved again. Uh, To me, I mean, this is a no-brainer. Like, you want to get rid of this stuff? Just stop with the nonsense policing, get enforcement right out of there, make it all uh, treatment, harm reduction, education, you know, get the police doing something that is uh, is going to actually have an impact and not put them in in harm's way. That's the other thing that happens with increased enforcement, too, is increased violence. It's it's a, me- a metric that is always the same in every situation. Uh, you look at when uh, Mexico declared war on the cartels. I think the, the first year of that, they lost 55,000 people in that country just to, you know, back and forth straight up military conflicts yeah um the philippines same thing with the the president they've got there he's he's still on this nonsense war on drugs kind of attitude or whatever and uh way more people have died since he's implemented that uh, program than before so just from a, again if you're looking at violence and and just straight up death numbers it's it's not a good scene
1: no, and, and um, you know, it feels like we're sort of doing it, I think ha- saying halfway might even be generous, but I was going to say, ha- you know, halfway in that we're, we are putting money into harm reduction in this country, um, not doing the full step of harm reduction yet until we start looking at safe supply. Um, but there are, there is some credit due there. Um, there is you know i think compared to where we were 10 years ago with mandatory minimum sentences that has changed a bit in this country too but but there's still sort of opposing forces happening there that 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 the end result is driving people underground and and pushing people into you know out, out of the light
0: yeah exactly and i mean it, if you look at somebody who's involved in in the drug trade at that level. You are not living an existence where the normal rules are even useful for you. I mean, if you have, uh, say your rival business competitor um, does something underhanded or whatever, what are you gonna do? You're not you know, a normal person, a law abiding citizen. We would take, a, we, if we had problems with somebody, usually you try to go to court and settle it in court in a peaceful way. When you have a, an entity that that is policed at that level, you cannot afford to do anything other than you're all in, right? Yeah, that means you're you're killing your way to the top, and you're doing what it takes to stay out of jail. So you can't have a half measure over here on this side when the other side is all in to, in it to win it.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know?
0: So yeah, it, it's a funny thing. It's like These measures are, they're all political kind of placations, right? They're just, I don't know if that's even a word, Um, but they just, they kind of, they want to appease a progressive kind of more liberal crowd, I guess, but at the same time, they don't want to upset the more old school kind of conservative viewpoints. And I know this is the way things work in our society, but man, why can't we just look at, why can't we just look at the numbers, look at what is actually working in other countries. I mean, we don't even have to do anything groundbreaking here, for God's sake. Just just follow the information that we've seen work elsewhere. That would be a good start. And like I said, I mean, it's not like there are programs that are doing that and I applaud that, but uh, we, oh man, we got to do so much more if we're ever going to stop this.
1: Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. And, um, Oh, just, I mean, the, the savings, the savings alone is astronomical that could, that could occur here.
0: Yeah, I, probably people out there are thinking,
1: Portugal, Portugal,
0: I just mentioned Portugal. Um, but yeah, they're, that's a great example of just a common sense approach where they looked at the situation and like, you know what, this isn't working. Let's decriminalize, take the money that we're going to save in court costs and policing and put that into education and treatment. Lo and behold, they've got their numbers are tracking in a better direction. I mean, it's, this is not, it's not a mystery as to what's going on here. It's just, and that's not even legalization. That's just a move in the right direction.
1: Yeah. You know?
0: um, so, yeah, I mean, who knows? I, I, it, it seems crazy, man, where this is 2022, right? And look at us still with the war on drugs.
1: Yeah. <laughs> No, that's right. You know, I, and I, I wrote down a statistic um, as I was preparing for this that, you know, talking about the, the disparity of, of, of race in our prison systems, um, you know, that, that Indigenous people make up 5% of our population, but account for 30% of the incarcerations within our country. Mm-hmm. And there's a similar statistic for, for Black Canadians. Yep. Um, and that, that, direct, that comes right back to, to enforcement. And well, enforcement going down and, and harm reduction going up would, would change that entirely. Um, and looking at um, oh, I think looking at, at how how we understand the problem too, and, and where we where we are putting our putting our attention, and what um, how how much we allow politics to drive our. Um, these factors,
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I it would be interesting to see if if all of a sudden we were able to implement a bunch of policies that that just withdrew, um, you know, it, it redirected our police force, redirected our our legal resources, and took all those uh, dollars that weren't spent there, and then put them into uh, improving socioeconomic uh, factors that probably contribute. I mean, harm reduction is obviously going to help, but part of harm reduction, like you said, is going to be improving people's lives in general um, from, uh, you know, starting from the, the ground up, giving yeah. people uh, at least a chance or an opportunity to, uh, to get out of a, a poor community or to, to have at least a kind of more of a even starting, you just want to give somebody a, a chance at starting off in the right direction. Yeah, and that's something we can definitely do a better job of too.
1: Yeah, and there, there's just there's so much more to that, and and the social issues that come hand in hand with that um, will take will take years to to look at and years for Canada to address. Um, so I, I couldn't pretend that I have all of the all of the solutions to that. But um, no, that's a very complex problem. But what you are doing by changing some of this model, as we're talking about, is that you're freeing up uh, money that could be spent elsewhere and resources that could be directed elsewhere and communities that could benefit from that. And there is that—that's sort of where the connection can be quite easily drawn and easily seen.
0: Yeah, I think so too. And I don't think it would take a tremendous amount of time. Like you could, you could set a timetable. And have your uh, your marker set for when you want to implement uh, each change in a gradual fashion so that adjustments could be made. And I know, you know, on a, a province-wide, from a province-wide perspective or a federal perspective, all these changes take a million years because of the way our, our government works. But we have to at least be, you know... Speaking up about what direction we want to go, I guess, yeah. uh, to start with, and then, uh, and I know lots of people are definitely with uh, the the opioid crisis, but uh, man, it's just it's disappointingly uh, inept, disappointingly yeah. slow.
1: Yeah, it is. Yeah, as daily numbers in in deaths rise. Yeah,
0: yeah, and I, I mean, this is like we've had so much time to to adjust. Now it's just. And yet, it, yeah, it it, it's, it really makes me wonder if if I'm missing something as far as what the motivations are, or the lack thereof of motivations. Like when I see the amount of coverage that um, that we got throughout the pandemic, just from a media point of view, I you know I look in the news and there'll be maybe. I tried to estimate it. I think there's probably a hundred news articles on that for every one about the opioid crisis. Sure. And, and yet the opioid crisis in DC at least is claiming more people between the age of 25 and 49 in their productive years by far. So what is it about, you know, you would, you would think that we would look at that and say, okay, we have to do. We have to put at least as much effort, spotlight, energy, resources, whatever, into that problem. But it's not even close. If you if you look at the money that's been poured in, it's not even in the same atmosphere. No. So, you got any thoughts on why that might be?
1: I think you know. I, I, as you were talking, the thing that came up for me was was, what if you combine the numbers of of with, of overdose deaths with the numbers of suicides and that there in some ways it's two different conversations. Um, but there, there are similarities in that it's, it's, there's a lot of taboo there. Um, there's a lot of stuff that people don't want to talk about there. And, you know, I think, um, I think that that's, it's sort of speaks to the, to, our tendency to go towards the easy, easy answer, or or society goes to things where we where we sort of pat ourselves on the back for starting the conversation, but I don't think the conversation very often gets finished, and gets really really flushed out. And um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I do you think that do you think that if we combine those two numbers? Um, overdose deaths and, and, say, suicide among among the 20- to 40-year-old population. Would, would, would seeing that, would, would grouping them together with mental health, would that benefit? Because to me, so often addiction gets talked about separately from mental health.
0: Yeah, maybe that's part of the problem, I guess, is this is a, it's kind of a amorphous topic, right? It's hard to, I mean, you can say, the words opioid crisis, but if you're to try to tackle the problem, like it's not, it's not about instituting, uh, you know, silly policies that can be like, okay, uh, when you go into a restaurant you have to put a mask on until you sit down and then you know, things that can at least when a politician puts in a, a policy like that, at least they can say to their constituents that they've proactively done something. But in this case, I think it's it might be harder for politicians to get active kind of PR points out of the the amount of attention, work, manpower, whatever that energy that they're going to have to put into the problem to have an impact. Uh, and maybe it's as simple as is that it's just it's not good political bang for your buck.
1: That's right. But we we sort of give a surface level of credit to um, a you know a. Uh, kind of a generic or safe tweet or Facebook post or something that can kind of generate, a, um, some support, but what is it actually, how does that actually translate on the ground? Um, and, and for communities for communities in our country that have astronomical suicide rates or astronomical, um, rates of, of overdose. And a lot of those are indigenous communities. Um, like what is that? How does that? How does that? What that politician is saying that that you know gives them the the pat on the back? How does that? What does that mean to them? To that community?
0: Um, I would imagine it is an insult. I would too. Yeah, and I would too. If I was in that uh, if I was in that position uh, and I'm watching my community, you know, I've lost my uncle, my sister, my two friends down the street, and uh, there doesn't appear to be any kind of you know, nobody's showing up. Nothing's happening, um, and yet this politician is 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 trying to side themselves on the on the correct. They want to be on the right side of history as far as a, this is concerned. Yeah, that would be infuriating.
1: And, and it's kind of the same thing that's happening with within our population of 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 drug users and illicit drug users that that these deaths are happening rapidly around them, around us, and we're still having the same debate on a, on a government level and on a social level that, that, you know, are we okay with handing out, handing out a safe supply of drugs? Mm -hmm. And, um, and is there a, is there a ceiling to that number where people will say, okay, now 5,000 people have died this year. Now it's time. Now it's time.
0: I often wonder that how many people will it take? Um,
1: you know, and then we just, wonder why people are on the fringe, or why people feel alienated, or or decide that hey, I'm still going to live live in my in the downtown east side, or live in my community that is that is rampant with with social issues and and with crime and and poverty and all the rest. Because I would, you know, how do they not look at look at the system and say, you know, fuck you, you failed me.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it I think unfortunately that component of it is maybe in rougher shape than it's ever been in our lifetimes for sure. Yeah. There is less, there's less general trust in our regulatory bodies and our government than I've ever seen. And I even, I, I mean, it's, it's crazy to say this, but, but I'm having a hard time sometimes coming up with, with good answers as far as, it seems like it's harder to find good data now on, um, you know, just uh, on pharmaceutical questions that I get. I, I find that I'm being blocked from things that I should have access to. Um, I'll either have to pay to get access or the information that I get is of poor quality. It's, it's and I don't know if that's my imagination, but it, it's, it almost seems like there's more barriers now being put up, so that it's harder for me as a healthcare professional to, to even access the data I need to be able to make a decision, mm. and and then you put on top of that the just the nonstop uh, stories and uh, and uh, controversies and scandals from like the drug companies. I mean, the amount of money they're paying out in lawsuits—it just it it's hard right now to to look at anybody who's in control of these sectors and say yeah they're going to figure
1: it out you know yeah yeah i think there are there are change, some changes being made but um and i've said this before but i think that a lot of the changes will happen in spite of the of the establishment and of the system and not because of it
0: yeah you might be right yeah um, so I guess looking at these four pillars of our since 2016 strategy and um, one that's supposed to be more tailored toward, and I, I will give credit here. If you go and you look at the, uh, the federal pages that pertain to this information, they're actually using language there that makes sense as opposed to, to what it was before. Like they don't, They'll say um, uh, problematic substance use, for example, instead of just substance abuse. As in there, and they even acknowledge there that the vast majority of people who use some form of drug recreationally, they're going to go on to live their life and to be just fine. It's not; they're at least getting away from demonizing every single mind-altering substance. Yeah, and thank God because it's. Uh, It's not reality, okay? I mean, people are going to use drugs. We know that. This is going to happen. So we're adults. Let's figure out how to live with this situation in a way that makes it so that people can live their lives and not overdose. How about that? Yeah. You know? So if we look at these four pillars here, we've got uh, prevention, treatment, harm reduction, and enforcement. What uh, are these in the new model? What do you think? Are they, are we putting resources into each one adequately or evenly or how's what does it look like to you?
1: Well, no, I don't think it's, it's if by adequate, you mean evenly, I don't think so. Um, and if we look at what the actual functional costs of implementing each of these pillars is no, um, the enforcement, if we include incarceration and, and like that sustained cost in this, you're, I think the, the enforcement pillar is, is eating up a lot of, of money and a lot of resources. Um, and I think the ones that I think harm reduction the, it, it has gotten more attention and gotten more funding in the last number of years. Um, but I look at the accessibility of treatment and I look at the accessibility and the challenge, and we kind of encountered that challenge in our conversation about prevention Mm that that's still a very hard one to, to place Um, that, that more time and attention is probably needed on, on prevention and more money and resources are needed towards treatment to make it so that it's not a, um, uh, an elite thing or a financially rooted thing. Um, Yeah. Yeah. One of the, one of the determinants of health by the world health organization is accessibility of, of healthcare. And if we can't, access treatment because it costs 10 to 15 grand a pop, then we've got a problem.
0: Absolutely. We also have to define, like we talk about prevention, we talk about treatment. Well, what is what is the goal? I mean, they don't define, what do you mean by prevention? Prevention of what? Like what? It, what is the end point that we're trying to prevent here? We know we can't prevent drug use. No. That's, that's going to continue to happen. So are we preventing... We want to prevent harmful substance use is what we're assuming. So those parameters need to be defined. And then those endpoints need to be, they need to be recorded and they need to be data driven so that we can see which way we're going. I mean, that would be a a good starting point. Agreed. Um, Same thing with treatment, right? I mean, I know that, uh, like, I mean, I've tried to define recovery many, many times and asked a lot of people about it. Uh, so, I mean, if I think if you look at treatment, well, but, you know, you want to get that person back to a state where they're able to, uh, they're, they're able to manage their own life. I mean, that's, that's a simple way of looking at it. And, you know, whether they choose to continue to use substances in the future or not, that's their decision but as long as they're able to continue their, uh, they, they feel that their, their life is managed and that they're happy with that. Then I, I think that person would considered treated, but that needs to be defined on a federal level too. Absolutely. Again, so it can be tracked. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, I think we both agree on the enforcement part of the, uh, the structure there. It's, The amount of money that's going in there, the amount of lives that are being ruined for, you know, what was the stat I saw? This is a recent statistic, like from the last couple of years ago. The idea was with the new new program that the enforcement dollars that were going in were going to be enforcement dollars to target high-level distribution. That was the idea. And the last stats we got coming out is 73% of low-level offenders are the ones going to jail. That's people mostly caught for possession or, you know, like street trafficking. Yeah. So, again, what you're saying and what you're doing are, are not the same. And the, we know, we can see it's not having an impact on distribution. So, you know, I, I just, uh, as far as setting your money on fire and walking away from <laughs> the problem, you're doing a good job. Yeah. But if you want to use those dollars for something that actually helps Canadians to be healthier and to to manage their lives better and you know go on to reach a closer approximation of whatever he or she's potential is then you're gonna to have to spend those dollars elsewhere
1: yeah and imagine if that language was used what you said that really really resonated with me the that if the goals of prevention and the goals of treatment were to support one's, life and drug use potentially at being, being manageable. So for some people that would mean abstinence, but for some people that, that would mean sustained, sustained, moderate, controlled use. And if, if that was the goal, then suddenly that removes that sort of the, the criminal side of it that removes the, the side of it that, that leads to premature death, uh, that removes a host of a host of the associated issues. Yes.
0: Yeah. yeah it it, it uh, from my point of view, and obviously it's a limited one, I don't have access to you know the people who are making these policies. I I can only speak to what I know and what I've seen. But from my perspective, it looks to me like the project is not going very well and that some big adjustments have to be made if we're going to have any kind of a hope of turning this thing around.
1: Yeah. You know, the question that, that, that you've talked about asking to people early, early on in, in treatment or in recovery is like, how is this working for you? How are you managing? If we as a country and as a province asked ourselves that same question, the answer would be very different than what we are seeing on a ground level. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah
0: if uh if bc was an entity that could express itself how would it feel about the way things <laughs> yeah. are going yeah <laughs> say i'm not doing very good yeah. I'm not doing very good at all yeah yeah so yeah that's uh that's the state of affairs
1: yeah um, So yeah w- w- so we're not <laughs> Uh, I chuckle because it's that's a uh, not a particularly optimistic <laughs> <laughs> way to way to cap it off. But maybe it is. Maybe the, you know that 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 that, pe- that the change is happening certainly slower than than we hope for, and I, I know that a lot of other people in our province and in our country hope for. But uh, we, I think, we can only hope that people's sort of perspective on that continues to change, and that that that. I hate to say that as people are, people's lives are impacted through loss of loved ones or loss of people that they're connected to by this issue, um, that, that maybe that will change things. That would be the potential silver lining to come out of this, this crisis of premature deaths that are happening in our country. That if, if it changes people's mindset and says, you know, we need to really, really reevaluate this whole story, that th- there could be a silver lining there. Yeah yeah for sure you could
0: look at it like that, and it's important to remember that these types of changes are not impossible to implement no we we could do this if we want to you know yeah um and it uh we need to recognize that some changes have been made. I mean this although we're, you know it, it doesn't look good from a an a you know a, a treatment and a cause and effect point of view right now, at least in some respects, the language that's being used and the, the way, I mean, there's talk of the way the, you know, even the stigma of uh, being somebody who uses drugs is is at least being acknowledged and there's discussions going on about that. Whereas, you know, that wasn't the case 20 years ago,
1: right? No, so, for sure.
0: So there's, there's attitude shifts and hopefully, hopefully that, uh, eventually leads to a paradigm shift that uh, changes the way we address this problem.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: All right, buddy. I think we'll uh, we'll leave it there. Sounds great. Okay. Uh, Yeah. So we will, uh, we will call that episode 10. If you want to uh, catch us on YouTube, we're on there as well as Spotify and um, yeah, check us out on there and you want to get a hold of us, it's us, as in us, at recoverymachine.org. So uh, shoot us an email if you want to ask us any questions about the show, and uh, we'll be happy to respond.
1: Yeah, I think this is the, um, maybe more than a lot of our other episodes, there's lots to discuss here, and so we welcome the discussion. We welcome... The, the comments and the questions or, or to challenge us on, 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 it. Cause it's the discussion is certainly better than silence and no discussion on this topic. So if we, if um, yeah, please feel free. Absolutely. Yeah. I would, uh,
0: if any of our information is incorrect or uh, like Corey said, if there's uh, something you disagree with, let us know. Yeah. All right. Thanks Corey. And uh, we'll see you guys next time.
1: Thanks Nathan. See you soon.